Hey, I'm Steph. I'm Alex. And this is Not Today. Hey. Hey, peaches. No, peaches. Oh, is that ugly? We <laughs> Don't can't call keep me it in. peaches. <laughs> is that ugly? I don't know. You tell me, okay? I thought this was the new nickname you wanted. What made you think I want Peaches as my nickname? Your face told me. <laughs> Do you understand? Um, I'm going to say no to Peaches. All right, it's been vetoed, my okay. queen. <laughs> this is too much. <laughs> too much. This is, take it back like 15 notches. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, King, we need it to be. <laughs> See? Yeah, I know. Hey, princess. No. Is that, that's way worse. <laughs> hey, sweetheart. Don't call me What's sweetheart. the worst? What's the worst name you can call somebody? I think Especially sweetie. a girl. Sweetie. Sweetie? Sweetie pie. I think it comes from more of like a condescending place, if anything. I know, but like, like what's, if, the, what's the cherry on top? Is it like hmm. sugar? No, hey, sugar, sugar can be nice. It depends on... I think the blanket of all of these nicknames is it, de- it just depends who calls you it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, it just is the type of person in the tone. Yeah. Because at my old restaurant, I liked all my coworkers and they all called me baby. And I was like, oh, cute. I'm baby. And then <laughs> if, I baby. if I went to a different restaurant and someone else called me baby, I'd be like, literally never call me that. Mm. You know, it just depends on how I feel about you, I think. Not to say that I don't like you because you can call me different things. But I think on the podcast, it's a little weird to call me peaches. <laughs> True, true. And I'm like, all these names are like sweeteners. Like, true. does anyone call... Like, hey, Muffin. Some, like, hey, Splenda. Splenda. What's up, Stevia? What's up, Stevia? Like, what? Anyway, oh I think God. I think Sweetheart has got to be one of the worst. Yeah. Agave. Well, how, do, how do we get into this? <laughs> I don't know. How did this I happen? I called you Peaches. Oh, right. And then I started calling you Sweetheart. Anyway. We're getting we on a tangent. We need to get into some real content here. Yeah. Um. Did you know we're famous? I did. Because you told me. Um, okay, well, for those who didn't know, one of my coworkers who I had not worked with yet, so I, I hadn't really met him yet. I had just, like, seen him in passing. And we were setting up together and we were having a conversation of, like, what we do in our free time. And he was telling me that he paints. And then he was like, oh, what do you do? And I was like, oh, I host a podcast. And he's like, oh, what's it about? And I was like, Survivor Stories. And he said, that's so funny. I was just listening to a podcast about Survivor Stories. And I was like, oh my God, what's it called? I'm just curious. And he was like, oh, I don't know, but I'll look it up and I'll let you know. And then 30 minutes goes by and he goes, oh, it was called Not Today. And I was like, oh, that's my podcast. (laughs) Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. I had no idea. That was the first time this ever happened. It was just kind of crazy that like someone in the wild was like, hey, you ever heard of Not Today? And I was like, have I heard of Not Today, babe? (laughs) I'm, it I'm consumes actually fairly my well thoughts. acquainted with it. Yeah. <laughs> it seriously consumes my thoughts. But um, anyway, yeah, that was cool. I mean, it wasn't someone like out in the wild being like, hey, I recognize you. So that's yet to happen. But when it does, mm-hmm. I'll be sure to let you guys know. <laughs> Fair enough. I feel like I have a good face for a podcast. Uh, yeah, you're freaking ugly. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm joking. You know, know your place, right? I know I'm ugly. I'm, I'm ugly proud. and I'm proud. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, what do you have for us this week? What's we're, what's popping? We're going to be talking about the 2010 Chilean mine rescue, the Copapio miners. Copapio. Yeah. Okay. I like that. 
You like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's good. So I'm going to get into my sources now. Does that sound good? Did you do I have to give you permission? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. No, are you Are I you don't. ready? Okay. So my first one is from CNN.com. It is an article called 2010 Chilean Mine Rescue Fast Facts. Then we have a naked science documentary called Buried Alive. And an article on NASA.gov published in 2015, Wikipedia, and last but certainly certainly not least, a Washington Post article written by Michael O'Sullivan. Did you say NASA? I did say NASA. For what reason are they involved? Would you like to just listen in and I'll let you know? (laughs) Just saying, usually they have to deal with matters of space. That's true. But one of my Um, sources is the NASA.gov. Anyway, let's get into it. Our story takes place in the Atacama Desert in northern Chile. It is the driest place on Earth and home to some of the largest mines in South America who supply the world's demand of gold and copper. August 5th, 2010 started out like any other day. 33 miners traveled into the San Jose mine around 8 a.m. They drove for 30 minutes through the mine's stretch of complex tunnels until they reached their final destination, which was 700 meters underground, which is about 2,300 feet or half a mile. My brain was already doing the conversions when you were saying it. Yeah. I try to give as many different conversions as possible because people are from different places. You know what I mean? I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, How, How much of a kilometer is that? 700 meters that's over a half it's so much easier with kilometers because there's just a thousand i didn't even know that so there you go 700 meters almost a kilometer anyway down there was a pocket of gold that they had been mining so that's where they would be working for the day they thought and that morning things were a bit different because there were cracks on the floor and ceiling of the mine in several different places One of the miners, Jorge, had been complaining for weeks about these conditions, but still, that day they went to work as he always did because there weren't many other options for miners like him. So yeah, that's uncomfy. Yeah. Cracks that weren't there before are now there, and you just have to go to work. They had been there. Like, cracks had been, you know, forming, but they were worse. So the mine was literally cracking and was in terrible shape and they knew it, but there wasn't anything that they could do because the people who, you know, maintained the mine and also, you know, were their bosses weren't going to do anything about it and they made that clear. So it's either you don't go to work and don't get paid or you go to work in really terrible conditions and you get paid. That's fucked up. Yeah, very fucked up. So men had been digging for gold and copper at the San Jose mine since 1889 And it was notorious for its poor safety record. It had a serious history of injuries and fatalities dating back many, many years. But many of these incidents were overlooked when the owners of the mine paid off the workers and their families to drop it. So this mine is notorious for its shitty conditions. This is disgusting. Yeah. And in 2007, the mine was actually closed for safety reasons by the Chilean government after an accident had occurred. But it was then reopened less than a year later after the owner pulled some strings, even though it had not complied with safety measures. So these men are just in this mine that is very clearly not safe. But hey, they wanted their gold, right? So even with the proper safety measures, miners are regularly exposed to harmful contaminants in the air, such as silica dust and other mineral dust. And this puts them at a greater risk of developing serious respiratory illnesses that can cause disability, impairment, and even death. Every year, 15,000 miners die in mining accidents around the world. 
It is a seriously dangerous job. Yeah, no shit. And now these miners in the San Jose mine in 2010 are not only faced with the standard dangers of the job, but also the mine itself is in terrible shape. So let's get back to August 5th, 2010. Around 1 o'clock, Jorge needed to go back up to the surface to get some spare parts the miners needed to keep working. So he and the truck driver went back up a half mile above ground to get what they needed. Because the way they enter the mine is, you know, all the miners kind of pile into the back of this truck, they drive all the way down, and then they work, and then they get driven back up kind of thing. But because they needed to get spare parts, just one of them went up with the truck driver. So on their way back down at around 1.45, they were about a quarter mile beneath the surface when they heard and felt a huge rumbling in the mine. Right where they had just driven, there was an enormous collapse the size of a 40-story building and estimated to weigh 700,000 tons. And just to put it into perspective a little bit, the Empire State Building weighs 365,000 tons. So, like, two of those. Like, in front of them? Yes, where they had just driven, a rock the size of two Empire State Buildings fell. Damn. Yeah. And I can't even imagine how scary that must have felt because... Yeah, they got real lucky, didn't they? (laughs) Insanely lucky. So further down in the mine, the rest of the miners were waiting for Jorge and the truck to return so they could be taken back up to the surface for lunch. But that's when they heard the collapse as well. It was such a loud and horrendous sound, they had to cover their ears even though they were a quarter mile away from the collapse. Mario Sepulveda, who was one of the miners in the mine, said, It was shocking, impactful, really. I felt a bothersome sound, very, very, very loud, despite the fact that I was in another section. My coworkers were working in different sections from me, and I felt a strong noise. There was no visibility, there was dust, and the heartbreaking, guttural screams of my coworkers. The moment was horrible. The only reason the miners weren't in the collapse itself was because Jorge and the truck had actually taken longer than they had expected. So in a way, they were very lucky because the miners weren't where the collapse had happened because, like I said, they were about to go up for lunch. So if Jorge and the truck driver had come down when they were supposed to and brought them back all up for lunch, they could have been literally crushed by this rock immediately. So in some way, it's lucky. Yeah. Because nobody got hit with falling rocks and nobody got hurt. So there's that, but still very shitty situation. They were incredibly lucky in two other ways as well. The rock hadn't completely blocked their air shaft and the dust that had been sent all through the mine hadn't suffocated them because both of these things could have very easily killed all of them. And for a while, they were pretty much blind as the dust settled in the mine, but once they could see again, they began looking for an escape. They saw this smooth face of a rock, which was strange, but they soon realized that it was a gigantic piece of the main ramp that had collapsed on top of each other. They started climbing up through the air shaft, but each time they got to a new section of the mine higher up, the smooth rock face would be blocking the exit. Which was when they realized that this was a major problem and they weren't getting out of there anytime soon. And the deeper the mine got, the hotter and more cramped and darker it got, and now they were all trapped down there. Jose Vega, a miner above the surface, noticed that his son Alex, who was working in the mine that day, hadn't signed back in from his shift. And Alex and the 32 other men were missing, and everyone was terrified that they could all be dead. 
Jose knew the mine well, and they gathered a search team and drove down into the mine's access tunnel, but when they got down there, they saw that the walls, floor, and ceiling were cracked. And also, rocks were falling everywhere, so pretty big indicator that the mine has collapsed. Yeah, that too. Yeah. But Jose kept driving deeper and deeper into the unstable mine, but suddenly his path was blocked by this huge slab of fallen rock. And the only way he'd be able to rescue his son was by finding a different way down. The main tunnels of this mine spiral over 2,500 feet into the ground and are linked by vertical ventilation shafts. So Jose and his team tried to go down through one of these vertical shafts, but the mine was still very unstable and creaking, and if there were another collapse, it would easily crush them as they were attempting to go down. They had also located a shaft that went down beneath the collapse, but before they could descend, the ground shook again, and now the shaft had caved in on itself as well. Right before they're about to go down the shaft, it caves in on itself. So this mine is incredibly unstable, and they know that. So Jose and this small rescue team at that point was then forced to leave the mine, not knowing if his son or the other 32 miners were alive or dead. This second collapse also meant that this rescue was going to take a very long time. News of the collapse and the trapped miners spread quickly through Copapio, and it became clear that this wasn't a minor accident, but it was a very serious accident. Well, it was a minor accident, but it wasn't a minor accident. Each week, I speak to inspirational people. Each one of them has been on their own remarkable journey. They've all chosen to share their stories with one aim that if people can relate and get comfort from it, if it can help someone, as one of my guests said, there's so much going on in the world. We should be focusing on helping one another and making each other better. Each one is a superhero, not because they have special powers, it's because in spite of what they've gone through, they keep on going. I find them remarkable. Please listen to Chatholic and hear their stories. Oh my gosh, that completely went over my head. <laughs> it was a minor accident. Oh boy. Uh, yeah, that's terrifying. I mean, they're going to have to drill a new hole in at this point if they even know where they are. Yeah, that's true. Wow. It's a very big, big problem. Outside of the mine, families of the miners had caught word that this mine had collapsed and so they started showing up demanding answers and basically camping out in the harsh sun to wait for news of their loved ones who were trapped. Retired miners and rescuers were still trying to desperately find a way in, but still no success. So when Chilean President Sebastian Piñera heard about the cave-in, he realized that the government needed to take charge of the situation. Yeah, because they're like partially implicated because they let them mine again, Maybe. Maybe. Maybe yeah. because their regulations aren't being enforced? I mean, it's definitely more on the mining company itself, like the, the people who actually run the mine. But, I mean, at this point, I'm sure the the president is like, this would look incredibly bad if I didn't try to get them out, you know? So the San Esteban Mining Company just was not capable of mounting such a complex rescue mission. So it was definitely necessary that the, that the government stepped in. Also, based off of the conditions that the mine was in in the first place, they probably wouldn't have put in 
as much effort as was needed anyway. If anything at all. If anything at all. Exactly. So those around the president advised him not to step in because most people believed that the miners were dead. And if not already dead, then there was no way that they were going to make it out alive. But still, on August 7th, Sebastian Pinera flew to the mine to meet some of the miners' families. At that point, it had been two days since the miners had been trapped. And still, nobody knew if they were even alive. But they did know that they had some resources down there that could hopefully keep them alive, at least for a little while, if the miners were down where they thought they were. And at this point, he had committed to bringing the miners home, either dead or alive. And he said that he would spare no expense in getting them out. So the families are really clinging to the fact that they think that the miners are alive because they can't let themselves think about if they aren't, you know? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's gut-wrenching. Yeah. And one question in particular was very pressing. Had the miners made it to this underground shelter? So inside the mine, there was an emergency shelter, and it was about 540 square feet with two long benches. But families wanted to know if the emergency shelter was even equipped with enough food and water to, you know, sustain these miners to begin with. And it turns out that the emergency food wasn't as stocked as they had thought. Because, I can't say I'm surprised. Right, because they had stocked it with milk and cookies and crackers and juice and tuna fish. But the majority of the milk was already sour. So, you know, it wasn't really good. And they also didn't have enough tuna fish for everyone to have even their own can. They all had to share. And not only that, but they had to, they only had enough for a few days if they really spread the food very thin. And when I say that, I mean like a spoonful or two of tuna fish every two days and a sip of spoiled milk kind of thin. Like, very minimal. This is like nothing. Exactly. They would get like a quarter of a cookie and like a spoonful of tuna fish every two days. Also, I'm just thinking that why did they pick milk? Like, are they constantly rotating the milk? Like, That's a very good question. Why aren't we picking like Water? canned beans or something <laughs> that lasts years? Well, I think the reason that it was like milk and cookies and crackers was because they weren't actually making it so that it was equipped to last like a survival situation. They were more putting down snacks that they wanted to eat down there okay. while they were working, which also was due to the mining company. Like it was their job to make sure that this was equipped with food for a survival situation if need be. But again... We're going to find out later as well that, like, this mine was really, really bad. So. It's already pretty bad. Well, yeah, like, it was unsafe it and unstable. But, like, they didn't have food. And they also were supposed to have ladders that would go up the air shafts in case of an emergency like this. But there were many ladders that were just left out. Right. Like, they didn't have ladders. Thankfully, though, they did have water. They had thousands of gallons of water, but... It wasn't that simple. The water was greasy and murky because it was stored down there to keep the machinery cool. It wasn't stored down there for consumption. <laughs> so it was completely like gross, although it was supposedly drinkable, which is the most important thing, but it was gross. And down in the mine where they were, at that far down under the earth, it was 100 degrees Fahrenheit and 100% humid. So it was like hell 
They're at the center of the earth, essentially. Oh my god. Yeah. So it's dark, it's 100% humidity, and 100% Fahrenheit. Or 100 degrees. 100% Fahrenheit. It's like a sauna, like, all the time. Yeah. The miners were in bad shape. And at this point, they thought they were going to die. At least many of them did, because this mining company clearly doesn't care about them, so why would they start a rescue mission? You know, they're just going to say they're dead and go on with their day. Some of them didn't want to ration food like that. They wanted to just, like, you know, eat the container of cookies because they were like, this is my last meal and that's it. But a couple of them had to, like, really take charge and be like, no, we have families, and if the mining company doesn't get us out, then our families will get us out. So they really had to, like, hold it together and believe. And this was going to be a very long ride for them, so I can't even imagine, but, like, they really had to hold on to hope. And like I said, they all did have families or children on the way. Many of them also had health problems from working in the mine. Jorge Gallegos had high blood pressure and lung problems from breathing in the dust in the mine in the mines for many years, and the heat was only making it worse. 31-year-old Alex Vega also was in paralyzing amounts of pain from an ulcer, and he only had three pills with him down in the mine after the collapse and had to divide them into four parts to make his medication last as long as possible. The latest plan to find Alex and the other miners was to send rescuers down ladders in the air shafts, since they were all supposed to act as, you know, ventilation and emergency exits. But like I said, there were no ladders that were in the air shafts, so that was abandoned very quickly. The rescuers had to make that upsetting discovery as they were going down the shafts with rocks raining down on them. Also, the ventilation shafts they were attempting to go down had another blockage from caved-in rocks anyway, which meant they had to turn back. And because of the raining rocks and the blockage, they had to tell mining minister Lawrence Goldborn it was too dangerous to continue that kind of mission. And this was a huge blow to everyone's confidence in the rescue and was a major setback. Their next plan was to drill small five-inch holes into the rock all the way down in an attempt to locate the miners, because still, they don't even know if the miners are in the refuge shelter. They're just hoping they are. So they need to actually locate them in order to drill a big hole down and pull them out. But that wasn't going to be easy either because they didn't know where they could drill that would allow them to make it all the way down without hitting any obstacles that would also set back their progress. They had blueprints for this 121-year-old mine, but unsurprisingly, they weren't very precise. So at this point, it was like trying to find a needle in a haystack. Not only that, but their drilling machines weren't great either, because the rocks that they were drilling through were so incredibly hard, the drills had a tendency to veer off course. So even if they're like, we're going to drill all the way down, the, the drill would not go straight, like it would curve. So they had no idea how to find these miners because they kind of had to play the like, okay, if we drill here, it's actually going to land here. Like, they just did not know. Yeah. uh, How are they going to do this? This is not sounding very good. Like, fuck, I'm losing hope here. (laughs) Well, don't lose hope because we got to hold on to hope, just like the miners. (laughs) They knew that the probability that they would make a successful hole through 700 meters of rock, and that hole would be where the miners were, was extremely low. Because of how imprecise the drills were, they had about a 1.25% chance of actually hitting the refuge. 
Well, you know what? That is more than zero. Hell yeah. We love that energy. All right, here we go. But this was... Come on now. But this was the only way they were going to be able to find them. And over the next two long... And over the next two long weeks, over a dozen holes were drilled. And the entire time, the miners could hear the drilling, but they could also hear when the drill missed where they were and would go beneath them. Both the people above ground drilling and the miners are like just holding on for dear life that someone will actually be discovered, but it's just like a huge... Disappointment? Disappointment, yes, for everyone. (laughs) (laughs) i couldn't think of the word disappointment hey fair enough damn so if they miss and they're really close they have to start all over again yeah and i mean at least the miners you know stuck in the mine could hear them and they knew that they were looking so like that was hopeful i guess for them but for the people above ground they think they're just drilling and they don't even know if the miners are alive so with each hole it was like a little bit of hope lost yeah i mean like one percent chance not doing too great but like i guess you drill a hundred holes and probably hit them once i guess yeah so they had over a dozen holes at this point it was also a roller coaster for the families waiting above ground because they would be told as the rescuers were drilling a hole that the drilling would only take five more hours four more hours two more hours and then when it was supposed to be done they would miss so it was just terrible every single time for everyone On one occasion, the miners heard the drilling and got excited, even though they knew it would still take a few days for it to reach them. But after a while, they heard the drill underneath them, which meant that it had missed, like I said earlier. Every time the drill would miss the refuge, the miners would lose just a little bit more hope that they would ever be found. But they still had to hold on to faith because it was all they had. But tensions were also rising underground. There were definitely fights that broke out between the miners, and on one occasion, a Bolivian miner, Carlos Mamani, carried around a rock for protection since he was a Bolivian, and he didn't have any friends down in the mine, so he feared that he might be eaten by the Chilean miners, which is, like, kind of crazy, but also he was in a very extreme, intense survival situation where they were rationing to the point where they got, like, a spoonful of tuna every two days. So I guess I kind of get it. I'm sure it wouldn't have been totally out of the question if they got desperate enough. I feel you like know what I mean? it probably wouldn't have been out of the question if someone had, like, just freshly died. But I don't think that they would kill him to eat him. But, hey, I don't know these people. But also, I don't think that that would happen, you know? I have, you would like to think that wouldn't happen. I have faith in humanity enough to say that I don't think that would happen. I don't. Okay. Well, it didn't happen. Anyway, Sebastian Piñera had a special cross statue made in case the miners were never found to act as a memorial. This was also very troubling to the families because even though they have no proof that the miners are dead, they're already starting to like put up memorials for them. So it's almost like a, okay, we're like really close to stopping this search kind of thing. At this point, the rescue team knew that they had to learn from their mistakes or they would never find these miners. And because the drills would veer off course and miss the underground shelter, they decided to aim the drill to miss the shelter purposely, and they hoped that that way the drill would turn as it was going down, and they may just hit the shelter because of how the drill was, like, imprecise. So on Sunday, August 22nd, 2010, their drilling had finally made it 
through to the miners and into the refuge. And when the drill had made it through, all the miners below absolutely lost their minds because they believed that this was their final day underground. At this point, they were completely starved and dying, so this was a huge boost to their morale. But even though the drill had made it through, the people above didn't know it yet. The miners knew that they needed to make their presence known, and so they took hammers and tools and started whacking the drill to try to get someone's (laughs) attention. And thankfully, somebody did feel the vibration from the tools as they were like, you know, holding onto the drill from above. And at first, they didn't believe what they were feeling and hearing because they thought that it could just be like rocks falling against the drill. But they got a stethoscope and they put it up to the drill and they heard the like different sounds and bangings of the different kinds of tools and they knew that it was the miners or at least they thought so they started pulling the drill back up and as they pulled the drill back up the they saw that the miners had sprayed with spray paint like the bottom of the drill red oh that's really smart and they also had tied um a plastic bag with a note inside using one of the man's underwear like elastics that's kind of funny (laughs) yeah And just to put it into perspective how deep they were actually underground, it took several hours to pull this drill bit all the way out of the hole. But when they finally got it up, the people working the drill saw that there was a cross painted in red at the very bottom, which is when they finally knew that they had actually found the miners. And then they also found the plastic bag tied around, you know, the drill. And they looked closer and saw the note inside And the note said, we are all well in the refuge, the 33. So this sparked a major celebration all around the camp. And that included the families, the friends, the rescuers, everyone, and the miners down below. Everyone was cheering for this major success. It had been 17 days of hell for the miners. By this point, they were emaciated and had nightmares frequently. But now the rescuers and families at least know that everyone is alive, which they really thought was next to impossible. I mean, yeah, they were making memorials already, right? Yeah, they were saying they were dead. I can't imagine how elated they were when that drill came through and it actually hit finally after so many times they can hear it right there. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. It's seriously amazing, yeah. And now that they had a hole, like straight down to the men, the rescuers started dropping things you know down for them and they started by dropping a camera all the way down the hole followed by a phone and now they started documenting their time down there oh they started vlogging (laughs) pretty much they all became youtubers (laughs) (laughs) so there were a few miners down there who stepped up and kind of led the men and made their survival possible luis urzua who was 54, was the shift foreman who immediately recognized the gravity of their situation, like when it initially collapsed. And he gathered the men in a secure, you know, in the refuge, and then organized them to be able to cope with this long-term survival situation. So after the collapse, he had sent out search parties to see how much of the mine they actually still had available to them. And they discovered that they didn't just have the refuge, they also had about a half mile of shaft to move around in. He also directed the underground aspects of the rescue operation and coordinated closely with engineers on the surface to try to help them out in any way that they could. And Luis was also very strict on the men with rationing of food and 
He also rationed, you know, their milk and their cookies. And even with the extreme rationing by the 16th day underground, their food was nearly gone, which is not very surprising considering how much they had under there. But he managed to pull it out so that they even had it for 16 days. And they were found on the 17th. Right. I was like, that's actually like incredibly surprising that they made it last that long. Seriously. Yeah. He also set up 12 hour shift schedules and used the mining headlamps to simulate sunlight and established work areas and sleep areas and a sanitary facility. So he was really trying to like make it as normal as possible to have some functioning reality. Yeah. Just something that they could hold on to, you know, right. Some structure. Yeah, exactly. Structure. So that was Luis. Then we have Mario Sepulveda, and he served as the energetic host of the miner's video journal that was sent up to the surface. Oh, he's emceeing. He's the emcee. They called him Super Mario (laughs) after Super Mario Bros, just for anyone who doesn't know. (laughs) And, uh, you know, he was kind of the comedic relief in a way. Then there was Yoni Barrios, who is who was 50, and he became the medic of the trapped miners due to his six months of training he took to care for his elderly mother. And he served the group by monitoring their health and providing detailed medical reports to a team of doctors on the surface. And another one of the miners who was significant to them was Mario Gomez, and he was the eldest miner at 63, and he became the religious leader of the group, organizing a chapel with a shrine containing statues of saints as well as aiding counseling efforts by psychologists on the surface so all of these miners were like very important to their survival in different ways but at this point getting them food was the number one priority now that they had a line of contact they had three six inch holes to basically shove stuff down and get them get to the miners so they packed hollow metal tubes with water bottles and food for them to be sent down 2,300 feet to the men. But the problem was the food they so desperately needed could have killed them. Because the men were starving and eating less than 300 calories a day, if they went back to their normal eating patterns too quickly, it could lead to cardiac arrhythmias or cardiac failure. Really? Why? I guess because they were eating such little food that their bodies were not used to like consuming an average amount of food anymore. So they needed to like wean themselves off of that diet kind of thing. Really? Yeah. You have to like slowly increase your food intake. I guess so, yeah. And they had to send down carefully balanced solution of glucose, minerals, and vitamins. And over time, they'd be able to build back up their food intake and give them proper nutrients that they needed. I wonder like, are you even hungry at that point? Like if you can't eat it, are you still hungry? And I bet you, like, they were. Can't... Yeah, but I wonder if at a certain point like... They only need like 600 calories or 1,000 instead of 2,000 a day. Yeah, I don't know. That's wild. I know. And because of this, you know, issue that they were having, they called up NASA for advice on just a bunch of different fronts. They were like, hey, NASA, can you help us with everything, please, for a second? Please, thank you. Yeah. And among them was a team from NASA who provided insight from the agency's long experience protecting humans in the hostile environments of space. NASA's initial support for the 33 included recommendations on medical care, nutrition, and psychological support, and they assembled a team of doctors and nutritionists to speak with the Chilean Minister of Health, Dr. Jamie Manalik, over the phone. So at first, NASA was just helping with the care and nutrition, but then they moved into like engineering and they were like, hey, 
this is kind of like space, so we can help you. Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that they have plans like this in case somebody gets stuck out in space. Check out the Apollo episode. But, you <laughs> sure. know, I'm sure that they plan for this type of eventuality a few times, right? Sure. No, but what I'm saying is, is like the the conditions that the miners were in underground was similar to that of conditions that astronauts would be in in space. So they're like, we kind of know how to help these people because they're such extreme situations that like we are prepared to help you with that. Yeah. I also wonder if it's similar to being like underwater. I'm sure. Yeah. You know? In like a submarine or something. Yeah. That makes sense. Like you have to deal with the pressure too. Yeah. Alex Vega, the miner who had to split his medication into like tiny little pieces to sustain himself, was finally given more medication, which is great, and he started feeling much better. And through the video camera that they sent down there, he was able to communicate with his wife, who was nine months pregnant and couldn't be at the mine because it was dangerous for her to be there. Because the families of these miners were all on the surface waiting to hear any sort of news of these miners and she couldn't be there so he got to talk to her through that which is great and their daughter's name was going to be carolina but alex told her that they needed to change her name to hope given the circumstances so yeah that's kind of cute that's awesome that's so cool he gets a it's nine months pregnant what a like literally could not have been worse timed i know is he about to miss the birth of his child yeah he is fuck that do that do suck but, you know, they had bigger fish to fry right now. I mean, yeah, but it's just, like, one more thing that I'm, like, really angry at the mining company for. Oh, it's yeah. It's, like... No, I mean, it's... I mean, it's, like, literally one of the most important moments in your life that you've taken from this man. Definitely. I mean, let alone you almost killed all of them. Right. But, I mean, it's just, like, another one thing. It's, like, a twist the knife. Yeah. But, hey, at this point, he gets to communicate with his wife. <laughs> I'm trying to look on the bright side, and any kind of capacity and the families waiting above the mine also named the gathering that they were in at this mine above ground they called it camp hope and they had set up tents and they played music and games as well as prayed for the safe return of their loved ones and they were there 24 7 they did not leave the men made a video for their families showing their living conditions in the shaft which was broadcast on chilean tv and mario sepulveda was the one who you know kind of hosted that and was he about to get like a gig off of this <laughs> actually kind of um but not really no way <laughs> well not entirely so anyway the men appeared to be in good spirits despite the this ordeal in the video and while the camera was great for communication between the miners and their families it was also extremely hard because the families had to watch as their loved ones got more and more frail i mean at this point they had food but when they first put the camera down there they were all like emaciated and sad you know but at least now the miners were able to send and receive letters back and forth to their family members who were almost a mile above them and still most people didn't believe that all of them would make it out alive because although they have contact with these miners it was going to take an extremely long amount of time to actually rescue them because finding them is one thing but getting them out is a whole other thing and dr andreas yarena was tasked with keeping these 33 week men alive they were all thin had skin rashes fungal infections and dental problems but their biggest struggle of all was their own minds some of them were really battling the urge to just end the fight because it was so extreme down there in every sense that 
I can't even imagine how it must have been like, you know, mentally trying to wrestle with this kind of thing, not knowing if you're going to even survive till the next day. Like, what if it collapses entirely? What if we don't all make it out? It's just... Yeah, the existence sucks. You can't eat the food that you want. It's 100 degrees and completely saturated. Yeah. I'm sure the water you're drinking tastes like shit. Well, at this point, they have clean water because they're sending it down. Uh, That's true. But yes, there's no, There's absolutely no sun. There's no vitamin D. Right. They've got to be incredibly depressed. Definitely. At this point, the rescue team was estimating around four months for it to take before the miners were actually able to be extracted. So it was going to take a minute. You know, NASA had compared these conditions the men were enduring underground to that of astronauts up in space. And based on these similarities, they gave them advice as to how the men should proceed with taking care of themselves. So they recommended methods for replacing vitamin D. Since the miners, like astronauts confined to a space station, were without direct sunlight, they were at risk of vitamin D deficiency. And that has a huge impact on, you know, your mental health and I'm sure other things. So they needed that. They also encouraged moderate exercise to increase the miners' muscle contracility. That's a word I didn't know. But contracility. I don't know if that's actually right. Increase but anyway, that muscle. Yeah, prepare their bodies for the stress of the rescue mission, essentially. They changed their diets to reduce oxygen consumption and carbon dioxide production in an enclosed space, something that NASA had studied for space shuttles. Um, They maintained a proper sleep schedule, which is key for mood and social stability. They were planning on providing eye protection to the miners once they returned to the surface because their eyes would not be adjusted to sunlight anymore. Um, They needed to regulate their body temperatures. They needed to use methods to maintain blood pressure and ensure the miners didn't pass out during their rescue operation. They limited media access to the miners and their families during this difficult time. They needed to cope with isolation from the outside world. They needed counseling for the miners. And they tried to have them communicate with friends and family through regularly scheduled times each week to keep in touch with loved ones, which is just as important for, you know, astronauts' well-being as it is for these miners. So that's a bunch of things that they needed to take care of. And NASA was like, hey, you got to do it. And they were like, okay, great. So then <laughs> they were like, okay, so then cool. they did. Yes. Drilling expert Jeff Hart was in Afghanistan drilling water wells for U.S. troops when he heard news of the men in the mine and their estimated time frame for the rescue. But he thought that he could make it happen in half of the time. At this point, President Pinera was willing to fund plan A, B, C, and D. He just wanted to get these men out. Plan A was drilling with tools that were used for digging minerals. Plan B was using a machine typically used to find water. And this one was made by two American drillers who, like Jeff Hart, thought that they could free the miners in weeks rather than months. They were focusing on plan A, which was to cut a 15-inch pilot hole using three rotating metal discs to get all the way down to the miners, and then a second device known as a reamer to widen the hole around 28 inches which would be wide enough to extract the men so that was plan b and then plan c was working with the machinery that drilled for oil so they were like let's do all of these things and see which one works first although it was still going to be very challenging because the ground they were drilling into is almost twice as hard as the granite they used that machine to drill through in the u.s also This hole needed to make twists and turns, and this machine is only made to drill straight. 
On top of that, the drillers had never worked with equipment like this, and this big of a drill required 20 liters of water per second to be lubricated and cool the machine enough to keep it going. It's a lot of water. Yeah, and one huge problem with that is they were in the desert. Oh, right. And the closest, Remember that? Right, and the closest water source was an hour drive away. What the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> this is just like... Problem after problem after problem after yes. problem after problem. It's yeah. ridiculous. But at Camp Hope, they had a never-ending loop of water trucks that were coming in and out, which was, to the families, a symbol of how hard everyone was working to get their family members out. How did the mine get water? They had to have water for that they were drinking, right? Thousands of gallons to keep all their machinery lubricated? Yeah. Where well, they, did that come from? They had the gigantic bottles of water that were already down there, so they must have already done this ending loop of water trucks. Oh, they did by truck. But, yeah, they're in the middle of the desert, and these machines require water to work. By day 26, the drilling had finally begun. So it had almost been a month before the actual rescue drilling started but it was still on track to take months and with each day that passes that passed the men were in worse and worse shape it was constantly 100 degrees with 100 percent humidity and it was dark and this lack of uv light was also a concern because uva and uvb help kill bacteria viruses and infection so it was possible that these men would develop health complications because of that which could be fatal because of how weak they already were and many of them had underlying health conditions to begin with right and you can't just like bring them into the hospital right this led to the start of plan b this is uh, the Water Boys. One of, right? yeah, the Water Boys. An American drilling expert saw the rescue attempts and thought that he could do it better. So by day 30, Brian Fisher was at Camp Hope with his gigantic drill that would smash the rock instead of grind down into it. And if all went according to plan with this drill, he could have the men out in six weeks rather than three to four months. Damn. Three to four months is a long time. That's what their estimated time frame was. They're like, it'll take us four months to get these men out. Wow. Because of how deep underground they were drilling, the dr- like for the drill to actually make it all the way to the miners, it took like days, if not weeks. Like It took a really long time for them to actually drill through this earth. I can't believe that, you know, the five inch hole took, what, a day or two to get all the way down? Yeah. It was but something like a, that, but that's then now different... we're going to just a larger hole i say just a larger hole but like you know what i mean the same just make it bigger dude just why does it make why does it bigger. take three or four months what's also so I feel... hard <laughs> what's so hard about that guys dude just take your dremel and drill down bud what's the big deal also this is such an american thing to be like i could do it better yeah we're gonna come in but you know if you could back it up yeah, and at this point, for it. the Chilean government was like, Fuck anyone, yeah, we'll do anything. Yeah, anyone who wants to give it a try, come at it. They put, try it out. They put out a contest. Yeah. I mean, hey, anything truly, right? Exactly. By day 33, the miners wanted cigarettes and alcohol. I mean, I would have wanted that on day one. Yeah, but... Like, we're going to get fucked up, the okay? Med- the medics said no to that, and instead they sent down nicotine patches instead. So they were able to watch a soccer game with their families who were above the ground when researchers sent down a projector screen and about a half a mile of cable. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. 
They were also sent down gifts and newspapers, which is when they learned that they were a pretty much worldwide celebrities at this point. I mean, give them something. Yeah. You know? By day 36, they had to stop both Plan B and Plan A. Plan B was an issue because the drill broke on an iron roof bolt close to a tunnel they didn't know was there, and there were fragments wedged over 800 feet down the 12-inch hole. So Plan B was immediately dead in its tracks. I just read those words, but did I comprehend a single thing that I said? (laughs) (laughs) Probably not, but point being... But basically, the drill broke on something they didn't know was there. Yeah, the drill got stuck on something they didn't know was there, and then it had to be stopped. Immediately. Immediately. Effective immediately. Yes. (laughs) I feel this whole time I'm just like reading words. I'm like... It's just like going in and out. You're doing great though. (laughs) Thank you so much. You have fooled me thus far. Thank you. I love faking it until I make it. So, um, and the thing that led to plan A having to stop, it was a leaking hydraulic hose that put a stop to plan A. I mean, this is, again, shit luck. Like, can we... Yeah. Can we just drill a goddamn hole? No, apparently not. Apparently not, right? Okay, what's plan C? Does NASA come in hot? What are we doing here? Please hold. So, below the ground, the miners also knew that something was wrong because they don't hear the drilling anymore. And they're like, what gives, guys? Yeah, what the fuck? What the hell? So, day 37 brought new hope. A convoy of trucks came into the camp carrying pieces of a massive new drill. Plan C, baby. We got plan C. Come bring it in. I want nasa and neil degrasse tyson to ride in on like an air force one yeah to save the day yeah. right now plan Some c star talk is on the beat okay we got plan c on the beat the drill was so big it needed to be constructed on a piece of land the size of a football field the drill the drill this is how big the equipment we're talking about is i mean it's got to go a half mile down right yeah and be strong enough to get through something harder than granite so it would take nine days to fully just construct this drill, but it would hopefully be be faster than both plan A and B, which at this point were stopped. So it's the only hope right now. But a couple of days later, plan A drill had started working again, but, you know, still moving slower. They really wanted to get the metal from the broken plan B drill out of the hole because if they didn't, they would have to start from scratch with a brand new hole and they really didn't want to do that thankfully in the last ditch effort to get the blockage out of plan b they were able to lower a machine in called the spider into the hole it had teeth and once it reached the metal that was in the way it was pushed into it under immense pressure which made the teeth bend inwards and grab the obstruction and pull it back up out of the way so the spider came to the rescue spit into it it's a (laughs) and it chomped down on it and that worked so now plan b was also back in action so were they like i don't know halfway third of the way something like that something like that they were they were far down enough that they were like if we have to start a whole new hole oh my god a whole new hole a whole new hole yeah yep (laughs) yep it's okay yep it's broken this week (laughs) (laughs) okay do we just sing a whole new hole and is it Mulan? That's Aladdin. Oh, Aladdin, whatever. See, I'm broken too. It it's fine. We got a. We don't need to do a whole new hole. We still have the original <laughs> hole. Plan B is back in action, baby. At this point, the miners had spent 40 days underground, 
15 days longer than anyone in history. Did they fly, fly in the Guinness people? What? Uh, world oh, the Guinness records. World records? They're like, hey, can you please quickly sign these documents? Yeah, they're like, I know this isn't the time, <laughs> but <laughs> our 52nd edition's coming out. Yeah. Can you just quickly snap a picture you, of all you of You did get the world record. <laughs> you did amazing. Like, <laughs> oh, God. Meanwhile, the families are still actively at Camp Hope praying for their family members rescue faith played a key role in the miners ability to survive not just religious faith but faith in the rescue team working endlessly to free them faith in their families to support them and faith in their fellow miners to be there for each other as a team early in the morning on day 43 plan b's drill smashed through the roof of the mine and everyone celebrated Fuck yeah. this huge success but it wasn't over just yet because now the hole had to be widened from 12 inches to 28 inches. They had to ream it. They got to ream it out. You know what I'm saying? So Brandon Fisher's Pennsylvania workshop built a special drill bit for this rescue that had four hammers. And each one could pulverize the rock at three feet an hour. I like that. So at that rate, it meant they would reach the miners in just 26 days. Okay, don't like that. <laughs> Isn't that insane? They're like, we did it. Now, <coughs> it'll take another month. A but, month. Yeah. God. By 40... What was the other option? Three to four months again? Pretty much. Like, they did not know how long it would take. They're like, it'll take four months, hopefully. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's not like there's a playbook. No, and there's also, know? like all these drills were not equipped to do this kind of rescue like this is new you know craziness so by day 46 the massive plan c rig was finally ready to go and its powerful bit was able to dig an entire rescue shaft in one go so we love plan c and it would only take 20 days so at this point everyone believed that plan c would be the one that gets the men out and for the first time all three drills were up and running so all three of them are doing their thing. But as exciting as that was, they were facing problems along the way that meant they were still a long way from getting the men out. Day 52, however, brought exciting news. The capsule that the men would be pulled up in was brought to Camp Hope. This capsule was constructed by the Chilean Navy and by NASA to be as safe as possible for the men. NASA recommended the capsule be built to fit a single miner at a time, which had a large part in its 13-foot, 926-pound design. A single miner could easily get himself in and secure without assistance. And for the capsule itself, NASA engineers recommended exterior rollers and a trap door in the bottom. The rollers would cushion the ride up and reduce friction with the walls of the tunnel, and lessen the possibility that the capsule would be stuck midway, while the trap door allowed the rider to exit the capsule through the bottom and rappel back down in case it got stuck. A twin capsule was also built to enable teams to work through engineering problems that might occur during the rescue. So that's smart, you know? They got one that they actually can tinker with. Big brain, right? That's this is NASA. Brain. They know what they're doing. That's big brain, NASA. Good job, guys. Chilean Navy, look at you. <laughs> Hell yeah. So to ensure the miners' health on the way up, engineers provided other ideas, including an oxygen tank for emergency air supply, an audio slash video feed for communication with the rider during the transit, and medical probes like heart monitors so rescue teams could check vital signs during the rescue. Oh, they should have gave him a whoop strap. 
This is not free ad space. <laughs> they would have to spend 20 minutes alone, unable to move, as it was pulled up a narrow shaft half a mile. Wait, but I thought this would take like hours, because you were saying when they drew when they drilled the small hole, it would take them like hours to pull it back out. Yeah, it did, but that was a different drill, and um, now it's like this capsule that was made specifically to pull the men out so it was only going to take 20 minutes for them to pull them like from the bottom all the way to the top oh so like in a whole day they could have all of them out correct yes god willing yes so the miners would have to wear a harness in case they passed out and there was also an intercom and oxygen supply like i said so it was as safe as it could be but still sounds like a nightmare to me yeah not great i mean this whole thing yeah, you would need Sounds to like be sedated for sure. Period. <laughs> like, what do they give you? Xanax, probably? I don't when, know. You're yeah. on a high dose. When I had to get my first MRI, um, the doctor was asking me questions as I was, like, making my appointment. And they were like, oh, are you claustrophobic? And I was like, no, I don't think so. And then I hung up after, like, answering all their questions and thought about being in an enclosed space like that and immediately called back. And I was like, hi, guys. So I actually thought about it, and I think I am actually claustrophobic. So if you could prescribe me something, that would be really great. And they're like, yeah, no problem. That's totally fine. Like, I was like, where do we got you? Okay, thank you so much. So seeing this, like, tube that they had to be in one by one and the thought of being pulled up through the darkness in this tiny little hole with, like, barely any oxygen sounds like, hell to me thank you very much <laughs> <laughs> yeah not uh not comfy for those with claustrophobia oh, God, do any yeah. of them have claustrophobia that would be very tragic but also can you work in a mine if you're claustrophobic yeah that probably sounds like a not. very weird thing you would have to overcome it i'm yeah, sure yeah at the very least right go to your happy place so by this point plan c's drill was moving far slower than they actually had anticipated and they had shut off plan A altogether because that one wasn't working at all. Down in the mine, the men were working hard to clear debris away from the plan B hole because while they were drilling, not the B hole. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to say anything, but I couldn't help myself. You're going to say the B hole and just walk by that? Like I'm not five? I'm five. I know. I... <laughs> I can't say b-hole and then have you, like, make a face like that and then not <laughs> address it. Like, I, I'm only human. All right. They're clearing the b-hole. <laughs> this is too funny for me. Okay. They're, we ran it in. Ran it, pull it back together. All right. So they're clearing debris from the b-hole because while drilling, parts of the drill bit had broken off and fallen all the way down into the mine. They were sent down diesel fuel to get their heavy machinery back up and running to get the job done. So now they're put to work. They're like, do your job, miners. Look alive out there. All yeah. Right? And so they're doing dangerous work after being in this mine somewhere around 55 days. Yeah. And like severely health compromised. Yeah. Right? Yes. When morning broke on day 65, they were only 10 feet away from finishing the, the escape shaft with plan B. This was an extremely dangerous time because the rock above the roof was weak and the threat of another collapse was extremely real. They had to really take their time and stay in close contact with the miners about what they were seeing on their end. 
but by 8 a.m., Plan B had completely broken through. After more than two months underground, they were finally ready to get the miners out. Fuck yeah. Now they had only one more night to wait and start their rescue mission in the morning, and everyone was on pins and needles about it. The medics had decided that a few strong men should be the first up in case something went wrong, followed by the weaker miners. However, they knew that the first one up would be in the most danger. However, it could also be the only miner who made it up, period. So it was a very interesting, like, okay, you guys kind of have to decide who comes up first. Yeah, I know, Here's the tea. Like, here's what could happen. Just after midnight on the 69th day, the cage was lowered into the mine, and Florencio Avalos was clipped into the shaft and pulled slowly up the shaft and made it to the surface. Wait, but how did they decide who went first? The miners just had to decide. Oh, they put it on them? Yeah. They said, whoever wants to go up first, this is the danger. You might be the only one out, but it's also the most danger because it could collapse and we don't know. But Florencio Avalos said, I'm going to go first. And he was pulled up successfully. He was pulled up and out of the mine wearing sunglasses, one, to look super cool, and two, because his eyes weren't adjusted to light anymore. Correct. Right. He was greeted by his wife and his son, along with the Chilean president, as he was pulled out. And the next miner pulled up was Mario Sepulveda, who was kind of the life of the party down the mine. And he came up with souvenir rocks from down there. That's funny. Which seems, Of course he did. Yeah. Which seems cool, but also, what if it made it too heavy and it stopped? Like... Well, I mean, if a few rocks makes the difference, you know. I guess. Yeah, I was thinking like it's probably How... sturdy enough to handle just a few more pounds, but like. Right. I mean, I'm sure they're going to bit like pull somebody up bigger than him. Yeah. Right. You know. Yeah. When there were still 22 miners down there, there was another collapse underground, which cut a cable. The live feed showing the rescue went dark. Thankfully, the cable was repaired and the mission was able to continue. So it wasn't a major collapse, but for a second there, they lost contact. Wow, that's terrifying. The other 22 people are like, we're going to be here for another three months. And the families. Yeah. Yeah. But thankfully, they were able to continue after that. And one by one, the miners were pulled up with no problems. And all 33 of the miners made it up safely with little complication, which is truly insane. That's amazing. I know. More than a billion people watched this rescue happen live on television. And the last miner to come up was the men's shift manager, Luis Urzua. And he was greeted with a screaming, cheering crowd. God, that moment must have been fantastic. Everyone's up after months of work. How many people were involved? So many people, so many many resources, so much time and thought. Yeah, all the families and the friends, the rescuers, the news... The, the government, the miners themselves. The presidents it, there. Yeah, yeah. Dude, they better, like, they probably threw, like, an impromptu, like, banger right there. No, they then did. There. Yeah. They should. Mario, I believe it was Mario Sepulveda who, like, started a chant as he was, like, pulled out. I think it was, like, Viva Chile or some, something like that. Like Love that little Chile. Yeah, it was, like, live, long live Viva Chile. Viva Chile. Yeah, something like that. Is that what they say? I don't know. I don't know. It sounds Fuck right. Fuck yeah, let's long live Chile. Yeah. Hell oh, yeah. yeah. Or Chile. That's probably how you say it. (laughs) Thousands of international journalists wanted to tell their stories, and the miners, after all of this, were expecting big money because they got a story to tell, you know? 
They all came from humble backgrounds and didn't know how press worked. And during the first year, they were on TV shows, invited to Disney World, soccer games, and they got into upscale bars because they were the Chilean miners. They were the 33, you know? And something kind of funny that came from all this press attention, well, it didn't come from the press attention, but something that was brought to light, was miner Yoni Barrios and his girlfriend, Susana Venezuela, are one of the most famous couples from the group because the press discovered that his wife and girlfriend were fighting over him while he was trapped underground. That's a that's a reality TV show. Yes. And the picture I have from when he was pulled out of the mine is of him kissing his girlfriend. Oh, no. So that's got to stink. He picked his girlfriend over his wife. That's got to stink. Yeah, I think um, because of, like, Camp Hope and how it was working, like, his wife was there and his girlfriend obviously showed up and his wife was like, get her out of here. And there was, like, a scuffle of sorts. Oh, yeah. I would throw hands on that bitch. Yeah, but I believe... Yoni like sent up a letter and they he was like she's allowed to be here kind of thing meeting his girlfriend. Oh god. Yeah. So I'm assuming that the wife didn't know until now. I'm un- I don't know about that, but it came to light. So one of the lead doctors in the rescue operation described how the situation came to light and he said the miners would start to send up their laundry, their dirty laundry through the hole to be washed so they didn't have to like, you know, stink. And the problem was they sent the washing of his laundry, like his laundry to his wife, Marta, but she refused to do it and she handed it over to his girlfriend. And he ended up begging me to lend him some clean clothes until they could sort out this situation because he didn't have any clean clothes because nobody was washing them because his wife was like, I'm not washing that guy's clothes because yeah, and he has why a should she? Right. Um, he apparently used to shuttle back and forth between the two, but in the end he picked his girlfriend, unfortunately. I mean, wow. unfortunately for the wife, but... What a fucking experience. You like, you were like horrified that your husband might be dead. Yeah. The girlfriend shows up and yep. you immediately, I'm sure you immediately like, well, if he does go, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> That's, I that thought's got to cross your mind, I'm right? I'm sure. I'm sure. And, uh... In the article that I found about this, it was five years after the rescue, and it said five years later, they are still living happily together around the corner corner from where Marta Selena lives. So they were still God, together. that is so fucking weird. I know. They were like neighbors. Like, ew. I mean, do you ever get over that? I don't know. I don't know, know if I, I would be done. Like, I would move. Yeah. Like, you're dead to me. Sure, yeah. You know what I mean? Right. Like, you come up and you pick your girlfriend and you kiss your girlfriend in front of like everyone Ooh, Ooh that's tough Mm-mm. yoni you got some splaining to do well yeah i mean like the media is gonna pick up all over this oh yeah of course this is gold yeah this is like reality tv for free so even after all the press attention and all the trips to different places the miners unfortunately did not get the money that they expected they would get many of the miners received government pension of only $500 a month after the incident, which was about half of what they made in the San Jose mine. And it was extremely difficult for many of them to find work, because for some reason there was a stigma around them, and especially those who wanted to get back into mining, they had a very hard time finding employment. Why? I don't entirely know. It was something about, like, they're gonna 
be negative or something along the lines of like they're gonna have health problems or mental health problems because oh, they're like they're gonna be a problem yeah they're gonna be an issue because they were already like trapped in a mine so like that's not their fault but it made it harder for them to find work which is insane that sucks i know to make matters worse, many of them had extreme PTSD and an extremely hard time with their mental health. Thankfully, the government provided them access to therapists and medications, and the men are trying to do better, keeping themselves busy with things like construction, soccer, even folk dance performances. One of them ran the New York ma Marathon. Like, they're trying to do the best they can with what they've got. Right. But it doesn't make it any better that the government is only giving them 500, 500 a bonds, month. man. Yeah. It's gotta, you gotta give more. Yeah, that's Yeah, insane. you spared no expense during the rescue mission. Right, so now For take 33 care of them. people, yeah. I think you can pony up a grand. At least. Yeah. Like, goddamn. And that wasn't even for all of them. That was some of them got this pension. I think it was ones that were, like, closer to retirement than the younger ones. Well, that's fucked up. I know. Yeah, I think they need an agent. They I need think to so. capitalize off this... Um, a little bit better. Yeah, their final shot at money was a book and movie deal. Yeah, I was like, where's the where's the movie? So in 2015, a movie based on their rescue called The 33 came out starring Antonio Banderas as Mario Sebelveda. And The 33 was shot in two actual mines in Colombia with exterior scenes filmed in Chile near the location of the real mine. According to Box Office Mojo, the 33 grossed 12.2 million in North America and 12.7 million in other territories for a worldwide total of 24.9 million. And despite the film doing well, the actual miners were only offered free travel and they were given 10, somewhere between 10 to $15,000 each by an eccentric Chilean businessman and Antonio Banderas, who, you know, starred in the film. So they only got 15,000 at best. That's gross. I know. And they fully believe that they were cheated out of profits from this movie, which Yeah, they were. Makes sense. I mean, you get to yeah. steal the story and then go make 25 mil essentially. Yeah, right. Fuck you. And now the site of the mining accident has become a tourist site. So that's even worse. It's I like... mean, can't they just like 1% Five percent right. of the proceeds are yeah. going to go to the miners. To the actual miners, wouldn't that There's make it more? Thirty-three people. Come on, guys. They yeah. got they got families too. I know. Wouldn't it make it more appealing for tourists if they were like, ah, oh, this, this, you know, twenty dollars that I'm paying to go on this tour bus goes to the miners. Right. That <laughs> wouldn't would that be, be cool? That'd be way better. Yeah. But, I mean, tourists are gonna go anyway. Well, yeah, for sure, and they're gonna profit off of it, which sucks. So no one has ever been punished for the disaster. In 2013, prosecutors said there wasn't enough evidence to file charges against anyone from San Esteban Mining Company. Really? Yes. I find that hard to believe. Yeah. The San Jose Gold and Copper Mine had a reputation as a death trap where safety measures were routinely ignored, yet the official investigation into the case of the accident was closed with no charges being brought against the mine company, you know, owners. Mario Sepulveda said Chile is a corrupt country. The president supported our rescue effort, and for that, I am eternally grateful, but it was good PR for him. His popularity shot up, you know? Yeah, I remember in the beginning being cynical about that, and I was right? like, yeah. Yeah, and he said, we knew there would be a cover-up. They said there was insufficient evidence to hold anyone responsible for the accident, but that is bullshit. There was plenty of evidence, and the owners put profit before people, but rich men in Chile stick together, and that is what happened. We were a band of brothers, all 33 of us. We survived together, and we were prepared to die together. There was a dignity down there 
that I have not felt since. So that is unfortunately how the story concludes, but it's a very intense story of survival, is it not? Yeah, I mean, their endurance is next level. Yeah. Like, the amount of time that they had to endure those conditions, Mm -hmm. and the psychological part of this probably is no comparison to the physical pain that they had to endure. 100%. underground for, like, how many days? 69. 69 days, like, over two months. Mm Mm-hmm. No sun. Right. The first part, you didn't even know if you were going to live. Yeah. All of those ups and downs over all that time. Like, I'm sure irregular sleep. Yeah. I mean, who else has gone through something like that? Like, ridiculous. Yeah. And I mean, many of them have said since the rescue, although it was extremely difficult for them to be down there that long and like intense for their, not only their bodies, but their minds, they said it was only the beginning of their real survival from this ordeal. Like after the fact has been way harder for them because now their lives are changed and they're, you know, kind of celebrities in a way for a lot of people. Right, but but they have no money and they have PTSD. They have no money, they have PTSD and nobody really cares. Nobody like actually cares to make a material difference except for that one eccentric business owner that gave them like 15 grand. Yeah, but that was a one-time payment. Like that's, that's it. Like they only got, and, and it was some, one of the articles that I read said 10,000 and the other one said 15. So I don't know which one it is. It could have been 10,000 each, which like still for one person, that's a lot of money. Yeah. But like, and the government's only given them six grand a year. Right. If they were lucky, if they were near retirement. Right. Yeah. I mean, $10,000 is a lot of money, but also for a, a family, and also, yeah. like, a one-time payment of $10,000? How long does that really last a family? I don't know. You know? Depends. Yeah. But anyway, I hate to leave a story with a bad ending, but unfortunately, that is what happened. Yeah. It doesn't inspire positive emotion. Unfortunately not. This one. But I think, I think the story on this is their brotherhood that they mentioned and their ability to persevere through all that crap and, like come out on the other side and you know they're still trying to make the best yeah make the best and have a normal life but, yeah you know that's true and for the families you know they went through a lot as well and they made it out so true. that's good but anyway what's your good thing <laughs> i guess you go first um okay my good thing is that my coworker knew our podcast <laughs> Yeah, that's, real, that's still really cool. <laughs> yeah, that's super cool. Um, So that is my good thing. What is yours? Oh, duh. Yeah. It was my birthday this week. Yes. Happy am... birthday on the pod. Yes. Uh, I forgot about it. <laughs> yeah, you're like, what's Already. my Already. It was your birthday. Yeah. We had a ni- you was... had a nice day. Yeah, no, it was great. We got sushi. We got magnolia. Magnolia bakeries. It's so good. Yeah, it's incredible. So, yeah, it was good. Hell yeah love that anyway thank you guys so much for listening if you would like to look at all the pictures we post of all the stories we talk about check it check us out on instagram at not today underscore podcast if you would like some extra content check us out on patreon at patreon.com slash not today podcast if you or anyone you know has a story of survival that you'd like to send us and hear on an upcoming listeners episode send it to no today podcast at gmail.com we have a TikTok that is not today podcast and a Twitter that is not today podcast for the T on the end of podcast is a three. Because that makes sense. Because that makes sense. And just keep breathing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>